12, we read the words of Jesus in verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. It might be difficult if I asked you the question, what's the best thing that you've ever done? Think about it for just a moment. Consider it. Now if I were to ask you, what's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the most egregious sin that you've ever committed? What is the most gross, heinous thing that you've ever done? Websites, by the way, now offer a place where people can confess their sin, that they can describe the most heinous things that they've ever done. And the confessions have included things that are shocking and and disturbing. And And it runs the gamut from murder to attempted murder, a sexual assault, um, what you might think gross things or what you might think simple things or silly things. It's incredible what people have posted. Years ago, a man was sentenced to die for abducting a woman in her own front yard, right in front of her children. He brutally assaulted her and then he killed her. The man shot this woman some 15 times. Another woman is being sentenced even now for brutally killing her own child, beating him to death. Is there a sin that's so evil, so disgusting, that even God can't forgive that sin? The answer might shock you. The answer is yes. There is a sin that even God won't forgive. The whole church can pray for that person. And it won't change the person's character. And it won't change their destiny. The sin has been called the sin that leads to death. In 1 John chapter 5 verse 16 where the apostle John said, There is a sin that leads to death. And I, I, I don't say that you should, should pray about that sin. Here in Matthew chapter 12 it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Our passage is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible and one of the most misunderstood. There are certain things that you can't afford to be wrong about. If there's a sin that's so terrible, so permanent, so irreversible, so unforgivable, you should know about it and you should want to avoid it no matter what. The religious leaders in this particular passage, just before our text, accused Jesus of having supernatural power by demonic spirits and most definitely by Satan, according to them. They point 
the finger at Jesus and they say, the reason why you're able to do what you're able to do is because you are invested and empowered by Satan. And now Jesus will point the finger back at them. He begins with the remarkable statement that all sin, no matter how horrible, no matter how terrible, no matter how consequential, can be forgiven. Even the thing you thought about when I asked you to think about what is the worst thing, what is the most terrible thing, what is the most evil thing, what is the most disgusting thing. It's remarkable that sin can be forgiven. When we look at God's standard of holiness, when we look at his righteous character, when we look at his dignity, when we look at his purity, it is astonishing that people like you and people like me can have a friendship with him, a relationship with him, forgiveness that comes from Christ. The amazing answer that such a thing could even happen is because the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus in his perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary comes and he offers himself as the solution to my sin and your sin. On the cross, Jesus suffered the terrible consequences of sin. According to the Bible, he's able to justify the sinner. The Bible teaches that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners. But there's one exception. There's one sin. So terrible. So irreversible. That all who commit this sin... Abandon all hope. They jettison forever. Life with God. Fellowship with God. Friendship with God. And so Jesus begins by talking about the pardonable sin. In verse 31 at the beginning of the verse. It says therefore I say to you. This is Jesus speaking. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. So what is this? What is sin? What is blasphemy? By the way, the word sin is found hundreds of times in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The first mention of the word sin isn't the first occurrence of sin, but the first mention of it is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where Cain has brought a sacrifice to God that is unacceptable. Cain wants friendship and fellowship with God, but he wants to come to God on his own terms. And God speaks to Cain and asks him why his countenance has fallen. And he says that sin is lurking at the door and its desire is for you, he says. That's the first mention of sin. It's lurking at the door of the world's first murderer. So what is this deadly and damnable thing that's so hated by God, that's so harmful to human beings? By the way, there are two Greek words in the New Testament which serve to provide definition for us. The, the first word is hamartema. 
That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it's a word that means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. In, in the book of Romans, Paul writes about it and he says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so this word, hamartema, is a word picture that that communicates the idea of taking a bow and an arrow or a, a spear and throwing it at the, at the target and failing to hit the center of the target. It means to fall short. It means to come just short of God's expectation, of God's glory, of God's revelation. And the second word is the Greek word parabasis. Or para, parabas is another way of saying it. it, it it's, a, it's a word that combines two words. There's a prefix and a suffix. And it, and it means to overstep. It's a word that was used to cross the line. The implication being that there's a line that God has drawn in his revelation. And you cross this forbidden line. So according to this definition... A sin occurs when a person deliberately or accidentally steps over the line of God's law. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we read, Whoever commits sin transgresses, crosses the line, also the law. For sin is a transgression, a crossing of, of the line, of the law. Blasphemy is different. Blasphemy is a certain kind of sin. And in this context, it means the worst kind of sin. It means deliberate, conscious, open, willful rejection of God. To blaspheme in its essence means to speak ill of, to denounce um, one Bible teacher writes, quote, this is defiant irreverence, the uniquely terrible sin of intentionally and openly speaking evil against a holy God, defaming him, mocking him, unquote. And that's exactly right. In order to find sin or discover sin, you don't have to look very far at all. All you have to do is just honestly, for a moment, close your eyes and look inside of your own heart. If that's too painful, you can venture outside of your own heart. You can find sin and blasphemy on TV, on radio, on the internet, in the popular culture. Everywhere you look, you see people mocking God, mocking the Bible, mocking the church, mocking Christ, mocking the Christian. The Old Testament penalty, by the way, for blasphemy was death by stoning in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Jesus was accused of blasphemy. But because he claimed that he was God and he would be guilty of that accusation if it were in fact untrue. Jesus could offer the only affirmative defense available to him. You see, it's not a crime and it's not blasphemy to claim to be God if you are in fact God. 
And Jesus demonstrates his identity in all that he says, in all that he does. And so, it's interesting. An unbeliever can be forgiven if he or she confesses their sin, repents of their sin, turns in faith to Jesus, loves, believes, trusts Jesus as God's Messiah and the Savior of sin. And what's interesting too, Paul confessed that he was a recovering blasphemer. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and he says, quote, although I was formerly a blasphemer, blasphemer, he's a recovering blasphemer, He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on and he says in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. This is Paul's way of saying, what I'm about to say to you, no one should disagree with. Everyone should embrace. Everyone should be willing to stake a claim on what I'm about to say. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He wrote, Peter blasphemed God when he cursed Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 71. Paul was forgiven and restored. Peter, forgiven, restored. Even a Christian can blaspheme and be forgiven. And you might think, well, how is that possible? How could a Christian blaspheme God? And the answer is very easy. All you have to do is think a single thought that dishonors God in some way. Speak a single word that dishonors God in some way. Conduct yourself in such a way that it dishonors God in some way. Do you realize that when you question God's goodness, when you question his righteousness, when you play games with his mercy, when you find his faithfulness suspect, his tenderness not true, when you for even one moment, in a brief and glancing moment, Think just for a moment that his love isn't real and that his love isn't certain and that his love isn't for you. You blaspheme. All this is forgivable by the marvelous sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, his shed blood, his grace. John the Apostle writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, that means if we agree with God about our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It becomes a statement about just how far God's pardon will reach. It will reach higher than you could possibly go, lower than you could possibly go. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you can find pardon. 
And in verse 32, at the beginning of that verse, look what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of God, it will be forgiven him. There are people who might reject Jesus. There are people who fail to recognize his claims. They fail to come to Christ. Is it possible that they can later be forgiven when in fact they embrace Christ, confess their sin, abandon their rebellion? The answer is yes. Some people hear the gospel. Some people run from the gospel. And they're later saved. When he says anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he is speaking of himself. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's his favorite title because it's the title that he uses to describe his identification with humanity in all of their lost condition, in all of their terrible circumstances. If a person speaks ill of Jesus, rejects his claims, spurns his love, ignores his sacrifice. But they repent. They come to the cross of Calvary and they go, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for letting me be raised in a Christian home. Thank you for letting me do this. Thank you for letting me do that. Thank you for letting me do this. And you walk away and you stay away. And then you later come back and you go, I was so wrong. I understand that in order for this forgiveness to take effect and reconciliation to take effect, not only do I have to acknowledge the forgiveness that's available to me, in the person of Jesus, I have to come to grips with the fact that a reconciliation also has to take place. The Lord Jesus' own brothers rejected his message and ministry. Mary, after she gives birth to Jesus, has other children. Those children walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus and play with Jesus. They find themselves in a first century home doing what first century children do. And they did not, they did not, they did not believe him. It wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead in a supernatural act of grace, the resurrected Jesus appears to his brother James and he understands that the message of Jesus is true and that the ministry of Jesus is true. Saul the Pharisee didn't accept Christ during his earthly ministry. He only later believed. But even in spite of that, the Bible always gives us a sense of urgency to the issue of repenting of sin and accepting Christ. No one, no one knows the future. That's why there's this sense of urgency. You may have a plan of what you're going to do after church. You may have a plan about what you're going to do this evening. And I hope it includes coming to the baptism and pool party. But guess what? The future isn't assured to anyone. You might have a pretty good idea of what you'd like to do and what you want to do. Jesus says, unbelief can be forgiven. But it's an unbelief that has to be dealt with before you die. Well, what about willful, deliberate sin? 
David knew the commandments. David knew that murder was wrong. He knew that adultery was wrong. David knew the sixth and the seventh commandments, yet he murdered Uriah. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. Paul knew that he did things that he shouldn't do. Look at Romans chapter 7. Paul warns us about grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. But is grieving the Spirit the same as blaspheming the Spirit? Well, the good news is the answer is no. The Ephesians, the Corinthians, the Thessalonians all grieved the Spirit. But they were able to seek and obtain forgiveness. Certainly David grieved the spirit, but he was able to obtain forgiveness. And some people may deny Jesus for a season. Some people may be misled for a season. Some people might be confused about essential Christianity for a season. They might be confused about the deity of Christ for a season. They may walk away for a season. They may fall away. They may drift away. But there's still hope. Because those who deny can affirm. Those who are misled can learn. Those who drift away can repent and return for forgiveness, for restoration. But there's a group. There's a group that can never come back. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have, asked, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame, unquote. Who are these people? Who are the people who are being spoken of in Hebrews chapter 6? The immediate context are Jews. These are Hebrews. These are Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but they later return to Judaism. They're unwilling or unable or for whatever reason, they, because of pain and persecution and problems, they basically said, look, I was born a Jew. I'm raised a Jew. I'm going to die a Jew. It's just too hard. It's too hard being a Christian. It's too hard. My wife has left me. My husband has left me. My children have abandoned me. The social circumstances are such that I can no longer Go in this particular direction. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. In that mind, the mind is saying, hey, guess what? I can have a right relationship with God by being a Jew. Paul, the apostle, who's a Jew and a rabbi, says, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus, a Jew, says, no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus, the Messiah, says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Who are these people? These are people who in their minds fabricate that there's got to be more than one way to come to God. 
And when push comes to shove, religion and by religion, I mean faith in Jesus, in their worldview, in their way of thinking. Imagine you grow up in a world and you think Christianity is a sham. It is an act. It is one sustained hypocrisy. It is a solution, a temporary solution to loneliness. Or this is a way to relieve curiosity. You investigate God. You investigate Jesus. You investigate salvation. You never come to Christ. You never really trust him. You harden your heart against God and the gospel. He's speaking of a group of people If they reject God permanently, they reject Christ permanently, they reject the gospel permanently, they resist, they reject the promptings, the invitation of the Holy Spirit, and they commit the unpardonable sin. They lose all hope. They won't turn back. There is no forgiveness. In my life, people have constantly asked me, Did I do this? Did I commit this sin? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? My answer invariably is, if you're you're concerned about it, the answer is no. You see, the person who's committed the unpardonable sin, their heart is so hard and impenetrable, they never care. They never care. The person who's committed this sin has no desire whatsoever To ever, no never, ever, ever have a right relationship with God in Christ. So what does Jesus mean? People can speak against the Lord in his human manifestation from prejudice or ignorance or honest doubt. It's possible to be wrong about Jesus and then change your mind. But there's a distinct difference between prejudice, ignorance, doubt... And attributing the goodness of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus to Satan. And so the unpardonable sin, look at verse 31 at the end, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. These words are chilling. They're terrifying. And they're meant to be. This is perhaps the most important warning ever issued from the Savior's lips. These are his words, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Remember the context, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they have a stubborn, willful, unrepentant resistance, not only to the Holy Spirit's invitation to believe Jesus, but they have a stubborn, willful, unrepentant resistance 
as they see the miracles of Jesus performed and then attribute those miracles to the power of Satan. That is their explanation to the promptings of the Spirit to believe in the message of Jesus. In other words, their explanation of Jesus is ultimately a rejection of the testimony that the Holy Spirit gives concerning Jesus. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 29, it says, quote, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Eternal means forever. Condemnation means the judicial pronouncement of guilt. We could rightly say, damned forever. Cursed forever, punished forever. Almost anyone, whether they've read the Bible, know the Bible, heard about the Bible, some have heard about these issues. They've heard in the dark corners about an unforgivable sin, about an unpardonable sin. Most refer to this as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you are concerned and sensitive enough to ask even the question, have I committed this sin? Almost certainly you haven't. So what is it? The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God's agent on the planet Earth. Listen carefully. The Holy Spirit is God's agent on the Earth to tell the truth. The work of the Holy Spirit is found in John 16, 8, where Jesus himself says, when he, speaking of the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Again, here we see overwhelming evidence that the Holy Spirit's a person. You can't sin against a, a force, an, an impersonal Force. That's not what's happening here. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit means to respond in unbelief to the persistent message that the Holy Spirit has concerning the problem of sin, concerning the problem of righteousness, concerning the problem of judgment. And so to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to say the exact opposite of what the Holy Spirit says about your sin, about righteousness about judgment the holy spirit's blasphemy or resistance comes with the willful determined irrevocable commitment to reject everything that the holy spirit has to say about sin and to reject everything that the holy spirit has to say about the solution to the problem of sin after weighing the evidence and considering the options and then resisting and then continuing to resist and then to permanently resist Jesus as Lord and Savior. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. The religious leaders not only blaspheme against what the Holy Spirit has to say and resist what the Holy Spirit has to say and reject because how could you even for a moment believe that Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin if you believe that he is a deceiver who is 
energized, informed, and serves as an agent of Satan. You see, not only do they believe that, but they go one step further. If that weren't bad enough, and that's fairly bad, they go one step further. They will seek to destroy Jesus. They will seek to condemn Jesus. They will seek to remove him. Remember, they've accused Jesus of being possessed and controlled by Satan. And if they persist in that unbelief, if, if they believe that with all of their heart and with all of their soul, and if all of their mind, and if they persist in that belief, they can never trust him. They can never believe him. They can never love him. Because to know the truth and then reject the truth, to condemn the truth, kill the truth, make the truth go away no matter what the consequences And Jesus spoke the truth and he performed the miracles and he cast out the demons. He controlled the elements, wind and wave and water and wine. He confronts the diseases. He exposes the sin. And then he offers himself as the solution. And in the face of every claim, in the face of every miracle, in the face of every evidence, The religious leaders say, not simply no. They say, hell no. And God did everything possible to save them. And for those who say no to Jesus, and for those who continue to say no to Jesus, who continue to say no, and dying say no, they can't experience forgiveness. And in verse 32, at the end of the verse, look what it says. Jesus, these are Jesus' words. He says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So what does that mean? This means the willful, sustained, perpetual, permanent, opposition and denial of the Holy Spirit's power. W.H. Griffith Thomas says, and the disavowal of his manifest activity. The idea being the Holy Spirit's not at work. The Holy Spirit's not issuing an invitation. The Holy Spirit um, isn't knocking on the door of my heart. The Holy Spirit has never showed up. The, the Holy Spirit has never given me an opportunity to know him or love him. It's the idea there is no God and there is no Holy Spirit and there is no salvation. Pastor Ben Hayden tells the story of visiting a man in a hospital at 3.30 in the morning and I so like what he wrote because it's so reminiscent of so many times where I've gone out and tried to share the love of God and Pastor Ben Hayden says, quote, the man was dying. The doctors knew it. The pastor knew it. The man knew it. The pastor had known this man for years and and he asked him, 
How are you doing with the Lord? Oh, the man said, I've always believed in God. And I know everything ship shape. What do you believe about Jesus? The pastor pressed him. Well, I've known God all my life, he said. I've tried to observe godly standards. I've been honest in business. I've worked hard. My friend, Pastor Hayden said, my friend, and you are my friend. I wouldn't be here if I weren't your friend. But I need you to be square with me. I need you to tell me the truth. I need you to give me a straight answer to my question. How is it between you and Jesus? And the man thought. And he replied slowly. I've never made a place for Jesus in my life. I don't believe in Jesus. If I were to believe in Jesus, then it would upset everything in my philosophy. It would, it, it would cause me to change everything I believe about reality and what I believe about myself. And I'd have to rethink everything. And Pastor Hayden said, by the grace of God, the grace of God, you've been given that kind of time. Think about it. No. He said, I'll die without Jesus. But the pastor still wasn't through. Why then do you think Jesus died? And the man said, Oh, I understand that he died for sins. And the pastor said, Your sins. And the man said, Perhaps. Perhaps. But it's too late. It's too late in my life. It's too late to rethink the place of Jesus. And he died. This man who was exposed to the gospel, the offer of love and hope, and he died rejecting the Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, For he says, In an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There's a reason why the Bible says that because the lights are on and you can see in the North Atlantic there was a vicious and terrible war that was taking place in World War II. There were U-boats everywhere and they'd sunk many of the ships that were trying to provide supplies for Britain and there was a situation where a carrier was taking troops across the North Atlantic in order to get to Britain and U-boats were literally challenging their very existence and they had to have a policy where they had total lights out because they couldn't provide any light in order to to give the enemy the opportunity to sink the ship and the captain had to make the most awful decision ever because there were six pilots with their planes still flying in the sky and he couldn't turn on the lights in order for them to land on the carrier and the pilots issued 
a statement. They, they called in, they radioed to turn on the lights so that they could safely land. And the captain had to say, you know what? If we turned on the lights, we put the ship, the crew, and everyone at risk. And those pilots ran out of fuel. And they crashed into the cold Atlantic and they died. The point? God loves you. God cares about you. But even God will at some point for some people turn off the light. And there's no place to land. In verse 32, at the end of the verse, look what it says, either in this age or in the age to come. One translation reads, either in this world or in the world to come. The more accurate reading probably is age. Age here, I think, might mean the earthly ministry of Jesus, either in this age. That means in the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the statements of Jesus, the death of Jesus, or in the age to come. I think that what he's talking about is future generations in the dispensation of grace and the church. It may mean either in this age, that means this chapter in human history, but also in every single future chapter in human history. The religious leaders were in danger of losing the one hope, the whole reason why God separated Abraham and Isaac and made promises to Jacob and Judah. Why he promised David the unfolding drama of the reality of a Messiah coming. William Hendrickson wrote, quote, for penance, they substitute hardening. It was an old fashioned way of saying, instead of repenting, instead of their heart getting softer, it got harder for confession, plodding. This thus by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they're dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable. Because they're unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. A couple of generations ago, a man was charged with murder. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. And in an act of grace and mercy, the governor of the state extended this man a pardon. And to the surprise of everyone, he refused it. He refused the pardon. And it created a kind of a constitutional crisis because they wondered, is that possible? If the governor pardons you, are you in fact pardoned? And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that this man had every right as a human being to resist and reject the pardon that had been given to him by the lawful authority. Every single human being has the right to resist and reject the lawful authority. By the way, within a generation, within two generations, Jerusalem would be burnt to the ground. These religious leaders would be dead 
A million Jews would be dead. Another million Jews would be taken captive. The sacrifices would be suspended. Thousands of villages would be destroyed. And even though the Jews said no to Jesus, God said no to them. Does that mean God is finished with the Jew? The good news? The answer is no. God is not finished with the Jew. God has allowed the people to return to the land and there's going to be an opportunity to continue to hear the story of the Messiah and accept the Messiah. And it's also true for many of you and your family and your friends. Some of you are familiar with Aaron Burr. He was the vice president of the United States under Thomas Jefferson. Aaron Burr's father was a brilliant scholar and preacher. But Aaron Burr didn't embrace Christianity. One of his grandchildren gave her heart to Jesus during a church service. And that evening she went to her grandfather and she said to her grandfather, and it's really hard to resist a grandchild. The grandchild said, I wish you were a Christian too. And the former vice president said, when I was a young man, I went to an evangelistic meeting and I felt my need for God's mercy and forgiveness. And I knew that I should give my heart to Christ. But I walked out of that service, never doing it. I stood under the stars and I looked up to heaven and I said, God, if you won't bother me anymore, I won't bother you. He told his dear precious granddaughter, honey, God kept his part of the bargain. He's never bothered me. And now, it's too late for me to bother him. What a tragedy. What a misspent life to choose dirty politics and treason over Jesus. There's a poem, we don't know the author, but it goes like this. There is a time... I know not when, a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There's a line by us not seen, which crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To cross that limit is to die. To die as if by stealth. It may not pale the beaming eye, nor quench the glowing health. The conscience may be still at ease. The spirits light and gay. That which is pleasing still may please, and care be thrust away. But on the forehead God hath set indelibly a mark. By man unseen, for man as yet is blind and in the dark. And still the doomed man's path below may bloom like Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know, nor feel that he is doomed. He feels, he sees that all is well. His fear is calmed. He lives, he dies. He wakes in hell. Not only doomed, but damned. 
Oh, where is that mysterious bourne by which each path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How long may men go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? One answer from those skies is sent. Ye who depart, ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. The heart grows softer or harder. The light appears or disappears. Do you have a right relationship with God? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would be bold when we find ourselves by that bedside with our mother, with our father, with our brother, with our sister, with our friend. Lord, we pray for a holy boldness and a divine conviction that people must have a right relationship with God that the one sin, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin is to resist and then reject forever the invitation of hope. And so, Lord, I issue that invitation. Lord, maybe for some person, the very last time, this is the last time, Some will say no and be given an opportunity to say yes at some future point. But Lord, we know that that future is not guaranteed. But I pray that the person listening to the sound of my voice would examine his or her heart and that they would ask the question, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that Jesus loves you? Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you say yes to his love? Will you say yes to forgiveness? Will you say yes to grace? Will you say yes to a future? Valentine gave his life for love. (laughs) He was willing to die and our savior too gave his life for love. And he signed a note to each and every one of us in his own blood, a willingness to forgive. And so Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has run away and ran away and stayed away. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would issue an invitation to return an invitation to believe, an invitation to receive a response to the Spirit's prompting to say yes to the Holy Spirit's testimony of Jesus. And if that's you, if the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart and you know you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't, I don't want to embarrass you and I don't want to discourage you. I just simply want you to respond, to say yes to forgiveness, 
to say yes to the gospel, to say yes to Jesus, and to say yes to his love. Is that you? Then make sure you come and you see me after the service. There's hope for you. There's pardon for you. Forgiveness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.